0: This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jordan Sand, professor of Japanese history at Georgetown University. Dr. Sand is the author most recently of Tokyo Vernacular, Common Spaces, Local Histories, Found Objects, published by the University of California Press in 2013. Dr. Sand, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you for having me
0: on. I understand you're writing this new chapter for this new edition of the Cambridge History of Japan entitled The Modern Metropolis. So can you kind of walk us through how is it that the Japanese city is changing following the Meiji Restoration?
1: Well, it's a very large question, and of course, it's a big topic too. I've decided not to start right at the Restoration, although there may be some occasions to talk about it, but to start around the 1880s, the point at which we see the population of the capital recover to its endo period level, and as you know, also the era in which we see the beginnings of modern formal planning for the capital, and then later in other cities and to uh, try and sketch out a century beginning in the 1880s, of course, it's a century in which cities changed in many, many different ways. I'm trying to look as much as possible into uh, material and spatial changes. We could be talking about their aspects of the social history of the city. But so for that reason, I start also with the beginnings of modern city planning. In answer to your how, if we go back and think about the nature of the Tokugawa city, it's clear from uh, quite early after the Meiji Restoration that the new government, the new national government, had a powerful investment in viewing the city as a display to other nations and in seeing the city as a whole become some kind of managed space under national control. Those kinds of investments in the urban space are to my eye, not present in Tokugawa, Japan, although, of course, the Tokugawa capital of Edo was under a variety of forms of quite intense social control and surveillance. And so I look, for example, at a subject I've written a little bit about in the past, the issue of firefighting and fire suppression as one of these measures of a modern state and a municipal government engage in a new attempt that we don't see previously to manage the entire space of the city.
0: Talking about firefighting and thinking of the city as a showcase brings to mind Ginza Bricktown, of course. And I've noticed you've dated your coverage of Tokyo from 1880, which would post-date the Ginza Bricktown of 1872. So do you see that as a development that is not connected to this later planning of the city?
1: No, I think it's terribly important. 1880 is perhaps a mark of convenience. Ginza Bricktown is a fascinating early moment in which we see precisely that combination of the attempt to create a permanent and relatively fireproof urban streetscape that is very much directed outwards, that is, it's a display, even a bit of a Potemkin village for an international audience for foreign visitors and at the same time toward that goal to regulate people's behavior and their choices of building materials and their land rights and their land investments in a more comprehensive way that the Tokugawa government had not attempted it is therefore yeah perfectly reasonable to picture starting with that case and i do plan to touch on it I suppose that we can talk about a kind of century from the 1880s to the early 1970s. First, as I mentioned, for demographic reasons, Ginza Bricktown is an early moment in government intervention, but it's also really an early moment in which Tokyo had established itself as the kind of economic center it would prove to be in the modern period. There was talk early on that the capital might remain in Kyoto. Some say the capital never officially moved to Tokyo. And of course, Ginza Bricktown is uh, well before we see industrial growth in Tokyo. So, or modern industrial growth. So, I think that the better part of the modern story gets told from the 1880s. But in an important sense, of course, we have early precedents.
0: And the date 1880 in particular brings to mind this Matsuda Plan, which is often said to be the first citywide urban plan. Yeah. Was that the reason you started in 1880? And is that the beginning of this planning movement for the city?
1: I suppose so. And I mean, because then it ties forward to Shiku Kaisei. And I think it's interesting, this relates to your own work too, that these first uh, formal plans for the city as a whole, which of course are in part very much about showcasing. And there are multiple plans, as you know, they have long lives as ideas, but they have very shaky existence on the ground and shiku kaisei for a long period would represent sort of tension landed interest and city councillors uninterested in raising taxes and economic downturns and so forth as you know would stand in the way of the realization of grand master plans repeatedly in Tokyo's instance and so I think one of the things that starting in the 1880s and extending forward and even through the reconstruction after the Kanto earthquake and the reconstruction after 1945 that is a persistent theme is this gap between visions of the city and the actual sort of planning that gets accomplished.
0: Shiku Kaisei in particular, with its emphasis on railways and street widening, it is often criticized for being mainly an infrastructure plan. And I'm thinking particularly of the critiques of people like Ishizuka Hiromichi here it would say that they're completely setting aside concern about the social welfare of the people in the city. Is that kind of how you're seeing it as well?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I don't have revolutionary opinions about it. It, uh, it seems to me that is a valuable critique. It's also kind of an old critique. And I think we take it for what it is, that indeed Kaisei was ultimately infrastructure-driven and about economic modernization. It stands first in tension with the sort of kind of Baroque master planning, also envisioned beginning in 1880 and championed by figures like Nden Beckman. All of that still born in Tokyo's instance, or almost all of it. There are glimpses of it after the Kanto earthquake, but again, each time the focus is overwhelmingly on infrastructure. People like Ishizuka and Ishida Yorifusa were equally critical of Shikukaisei and subsequent plans for failing to—I mean, as you said—to consider welfare, which is to say, to include public housing, to have a grander vision of what should be done for the lower classes, and being in that sense kind of capitalist technocratic which is probably fair enough all of this starts to look very different by the 1970s and 80s at least to architects in japan who start to say well actually this lack of master planning has been our great virtue or the distinguishing feature that now makes our city unique and it suddenly gets turned on its head and ever since then really we've had a whole kind of strain of international discourse about Japanese urbanism that has celebrated its chaotic and seemingly, at first glance, illegible character. And so I think there isn't a sort of a single correct take on it all in my eyes. But what we see are repeated debates, you might say, around what planning is supposed to be for. And the single greatest continuity that the things that generally have been accomplished, with rare exceptions, have been infrastructural.
0: I think there might be some listeners who are hearing us describe urban plans of Tokyo and and thinking about like wow well, well you know in Tokyo you don't see the kind of grid network that you see in Manhattan so they might be saying well are Japanese cities really that planned? Is Tokyo really that planned of a city?
1: That's precisely what I'm saying became a point of fascination and even of celebration and following from the 1970s or 80s, at least among architects, the idea that it was unplanned and successful. I think that's a kind of a willful distortion. It's an interesting idea. But of course, planning goes on at many levels. And infrastructure and at least since the 1960s quite detailed and effective zoning laws with regard to building height and volume and so on and so forth are integral to a very sophisticated planning tradition in Japan the sort of planning that Andre Sorensen and others have written about and we shouldn't bypass it but the fact is that there's planning and that back in the days of Indian Beckman there was a vision of planning for monuments and vistas, and a conception of urban legibility and broad boulevards as integral to a civilized bourgeois city. And very little of that sort of planning was accomplished. And so, you know, we may need to make distinctions. It was celebrated as unplanned at one point, and I think that's worth remembering that very celebration within the history of kind of discourses of the city.
0: As urban theorists from Henri Lefebvre to Michel Dersiteau would point out, you, know, you can have the planning of the state, but really it's the grassroots bottom up energies of the people that give life to the city. And so you're also writing about places like Asakusa, Ginza, these the spaces of mass consumerism. Are those developing separate from these planning exercises, or is it in some kind of negotiation?
1: My interesting question. Okay, Ginza, of course, starts with the brick town, and I don't think we would have the Ginza of 1920s planarism, gimbura, and consumer spectacle that develops there if we had not had Ginza Bricktown. So in a certain sense, something gets imprinted and will then have it after effects after a certain district of the city has received its imprint. On the other hand, there's a tremendous amount that's spontaneous and unplanned in the way the walkers of the city, to use the term, or the Ginza consumers, or the Asakusa review and their audiences use and reinvent urban space. And the kinds of cultural meanings that become attached to these places, of course, are very far from what planners had in mind for them. Contrary to that, there is a sort of form of planned urban spectacle which plays a very large role in Tokyo's history it doesn't cover the space of the entire city but that's the long trajectory of expositions and i think i would say three olympics plans for the city because there was to have been an olympics in 1940 there was one in 64 we will see one again soon in 2020 these kinds of celebratory events are also civilizing processes from the perspective of the authorities for the public And that was equally true back in the days of the early domestic expositions, of which there were, what, five or more in the Meiji period, as it was true in 1964, something that Yoshikuni Igarashi wrote so effectively about. So there's that date spectacle as a piece of the long-term cultural history of the city that, in interesting ways, interweaves with at the same time that it sort of seeks to discipline and more unruly culture of spectacle in places like Asakusa.
0: Speaking of these major moments of transformation that really reshaped the city. Of course, when we look at this big, long history of of Tokyo, two really striking moments occur in 1923 and 1945, when much of the city is burned down first by an earthquake and then firebombing at the end of World War II. So what impact do these two events have on the city?
1: You know, that's that's an issue that I've kind of gone back and forth on over the years. Now, when I was primarily a historian of dwelling space, I came to the slightly unorthodox conclusion that the impact was minor of both 1923 and 1945, and that's a rather contrarian position to take in light of the fact that both of them were devastating in human terms, devastating economically, and that in the memories of people and from the perspective of municipal authorities, they were starting from zero after September 19... Twenty-three and after August 1945. But I came to think they were rather minor in the long history of houses and the way people lived in ordinary houses in Tokyo, because after each of them, within a few years, most people are living in the same sort of neighborhoods and the same sorts of houses. There is a considerable amount of replatting of the streets and replanting that happens after each of them. And, you know, lots of people found themselves in new environments subsequently. But the houses themselves, not so changed. And there really are tremendous continuities, housing being perhaps the most striking, down to the 1970s when we start to see the shift from wood to reinforced concrete and to steel and concrete. People lived in one and two-story wooden structures straight across most of the century. That said, Obviously, there's a major impact on the social geography, as has been documented in the case of 1923. It created an enormous expansion into suburban former farmland of the urban built-up area. And so lots of people were living in new suburbs and often suburban industrial districts, not just the sort of middle-class suburbs I once wrote about. That kind of change was very significant. Of course, 1945 also comes with a major political change. And the new political situation is the inspiration also for a lot of mega planning or grand planning. But again, I think that the uh, impact was nowhere near as great as some of the idealist planners of the late 40s had hoped. And in that sense, perhaps 64 makes a greater impact in terms of transformation of the urban fabric than 1945 does. Because by 1964, by the end of the 1950s, Japan is in a position to invest in totally new kinds of technologies, and it becomes a city of highways and rapid rail and so forth. that uh, had not quite been possible previously
0: time that I've spent in Tokyo, in fact, the times that I've lived there have always been in the southwestern area of the the city and what we might call the Yamanote. And so living there, then traveling to other parts of Tokyo, especially on the eastern side in the Shitamachi, you really do feel the kind of differences in the culture of the city. In your chapter, you're talking about how it migrates around. Could you talk a bit about this Shitamachi area of the city?
1: Yeah, this is something I think Ted Bester said at one time that Shitamachi has existed always as both a place and an idea. And the migration, of course, is because this is an informal designation. There's no administrative district called Shitamachi, right? And like downtown or Cockney, London, or one of these things, it's a kind of a cultural ensemble. And yet it is distinctive. It's distinctive to as having been a castle town with two populations, ruling elite who lived in estates that were granted to them by the authorities, and of course, a provisioning working and commercial class. And as you know, that lives on in the social geography of the city to this day. But what's happened is as the city expands, the working class or commercial area of the city has also expanded. And the conception of what Stamachi is has followed those social and economic changes. So that Stamachi's true heart was from Edo into the, I guess, middle to late Meiji period around uh, Nihonbashi. It was really a a commercial district, but people came to think of places on the far side of the Sumida River, where industry developed and where dense working-class neighborhoods clustered around new mills and cement factories and so forth, as the true working-class city and therefore as Shitamachi. With time, Stamachi moves even further out until it's at the borders of the Edo River in what is truly suburban, and a new kind of nostalgia starts to develop around working-class life, exemplified in the Torasan movies. Now you have to go farther from the center of the city to find a venue that appears to embody those values. So Shtamachi has kept gravitating.
0: We often hear that Tokyo is a humongous city that's a collection of villages. And it's certainly there are certain parts of the city that do seem to have the unique culture. And I'm thinking of Shimo Kitazawa, Daikanyama, Hiro, Roppongi. And I'm curious, when you go to Tokyo, what are your favorite parts of the city? And where are the parts that you feel, say, the most at home or you feel the most unique culture there?
1: I spent a lot of time in the Yanesen neighborhood, which I wrote about in Tokyo vernacular. It was really formative for me uh, living in that neighborhood back when I was a student, and I've watched it change since, and it's still a wonderful place. And the curious thing about it is, uh, Yanesen is an invented name because it conjoins the names of three different municipal districts, or Machi, Yanaka, Nezu, and Sendagi. And from the 80s, when I was first living there, that was precisely the new locus of this image of village Tokyo that you're talking about. And of course, that whole idea of the city as a cluster of villages has its own interesting intellectual history. But in any case, at this moment when nostalgia was becoming quite intense for an earlier and what was seen as a kind of a simpler urban lifestyle, Yanesen was a focal point for that. And I've always had a kind of healthy skepticism about those things, and yet there was a strong sense of community actually being formed at that time in the Yanesen area around sense of the true traditions of Tokyo life being at the neighborhood level and being in small alleyways and intimate relations among neighbors in those places. And that really did take a hold. And I think in a positive way, it took a hold in that neighborhood, made people more aware of their own surroundings and the virtues of them. And that's been a great thing in that part of town and in some other parts of town too. You even see it in many of the districts along the Chuo Line and elsewhere that there's a sort of a reawakening of appreciation for Backstreet Tokyo and its livability. At the same time, the unfortunate result right now is for the Yanisen District is it's become so iconic of that that it's a tourist site and the two don't go very well together. An appreciation of intimacy and Mass tourism are a difficult mix, and it's struggling with that right now. It's still a neighborhood I feel a strong personal attachment to, though.
0: On that same topic of this conflict between tourism and the culture of the neighborhood, Shimokitazawa in particular, is one that has this very kind of unique culture. But now there's a lot of concern that it's going to lose that as Odakyu line is going to be buried. And they're talking about maybe even putting a major highway over the top of it, which would completely change the fabric of that neighborhood.
1: It's interesting because, you know, Shimokita really developed more urban consciousness partly as a counterculture site. And so now you're seeing since the nineties a lot of young people mobilizing around a sense of neighborhood in Shimokita and fighting against development. You know, it has different iterations in different places. In Yanesen it really was the preponderance of old shops and elderly people with stories to tell of their neighborhood that uh, drove the sort of movement of machizukuri or local town placemaking there. In Shimokitazawa, I think it's been driven much more by kind of counterculture. And yet the issues are very similar. Tokyo's old neighborhood fabric is fragile. And of course, lots of interesting new urban forms emerging as well. I'm quite a fan of the whole scene out in the landfill islands of the bay. I think Odaipa is an amazing and strange place, and it has its own layers of history. But the fact is that these strong neighborhood identities have become a mobilizing force because people realizing they're losing something.
0: Speaking of those landfill islands out in the bay like Odaiba, that part of what we could call waterfront Tokyo, a place like Toyosu, are looking to see a lot of development surrounding the 2020 Olympics.
1: Well, of course, it's different in different places, and I'm still hoping that it will have a relatively light impact on the city. I think there are too many cases where the impact of Olympics rush development is basically negative. I think that the rush to put in a massive new stadium designed by Zaha Hadid was a mistake, for example. They have drawn back from that, but they probably could have lived with their old stadium. It's a bit unfortunate that they felt determined they had to have another showpiece, which of course is always part of these international mega events. Out in the Bay, well, there's plenty of room. There's been a lot of dispute about particular venues, but I'm not too concerned about historical fabric out in the bay, per se. Around Ueno, there is presently planning for a manifold increase in tourism. And that bleeds again into the Yanesen district and over to other adjacent Stamachi areas. I'm not entirely sanguine that that will be good for those areas. I don't know if they can really carry it. So there are places of concern and there are places where I think we'll see, you know, kind of fun, new, play spots, as they call them in Japan, probably both will result. As I expect, both resulted in 1964. I mean, certainly there are triumphs of architecture and of planning that we can thank the 1964 Olympics and the redevelopment in its planning stages for having given us Tangé Stadium, the Shinkansen. I mean, that's an extraordinary, extraordinary piece of national land planning, of technology, of course, and it was also a massive rush effort for the olympics wasn't
0: it one impact might be that tokyo starts to recognize that it's on the waterfront right (laughs) every tokyo has a waterfront and it seems like for so long tokyo has kind of turned its back on the water i mean you have odaiba for sure but with all these islands out stretching further and further out into tokyo bay it doesn't have the same kind of identifiable waterfront cityscape as a city like new york or hong kong for that matter
1: The idea of seeing as an amenity the fact that bay is right there, that Tokyo is on the Sumida and on the bay, of course, is something that dates to the early 1980s. It's been around for a while. We hear a lot of it whenever the talk is of the landfill. And, oh, I don't think that uh, they're doing a bad job, per se, with that waterfront as what sort of visual enhancement of the landscape. I think where the real frontier lies and i hope and pray that it will be something that is pursued in the generation to come with real earnestness is in the natural potential as a natural environment to be recovered of the river and the bay what we're talking about when we talk about volta is mostly cosmetic plus a few waterborne leisure activities But Tokyo Bay actually was all mudflats with incredibly rich natural environment for all kinds of marine animals and plants. There's actually no reason not to recover a lot of that. And I like to think that, of course, it's a long haul, but I like to think with time, a steady process of removal of concrete and recovery of natural interface between the land and the water will be the real waterfront project for Tokyo. There's interest. There are local groups in Chiba and Yokohama, Kanagawa, who are looking for ways piecemeal to recover what you can call the real waterfront. And I think we'll see Tokyo get on board eventually.
0: The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.